welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm really pleased to welcome David Badanis, best-selling author, speaker, futurist and polymath. David's books include E equals MC squared, which is translated into 24 languages and made into a ballet, Electric Universe, History of Electricity, and Passionate Minds, about a love affair that is also a kind of microcosm of the Enlightenment. He has been a popular speaker at Davos and big corporates, and for many years taught the Intellectual Toolkit course at Oxford, a course I'd really love to have done. His most recent book, The Art of Fairness, asks whether nice guys and girls can win. The answer, I'm pleased to tell you, is yes. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast, David. Welcome to Work Interrupted. We're in lockdown three at the moment, which looks as if it may last about 15 years. How has it been for you so far? Wonderful. Uh, Writers are people who spend most of their lives wandering around their homes in pyjamas holding a cup of tea, looking uh, at, at the outside world kind of wanting to have friends, but also not wanting to be interrupted. And this has given me a great excuse to, a great way to not be interrupted. So it's kind of been like my ordinary life. It's actually been good in one sense. It's doubled my social life. Uh, My wife is home, so we have lunch together. (laughs) Suzanne Moore said on this podcast last summer that loads of writers were doling out their entirely unwanted advice on how to work from home when this thing hit, because writers are a bit weird in choosing to spend most of their working lives on their own. And, uh, but many of us leaven that solitude with quite a hectic social life. Where are you on the kind of extroversion, introversion spectrum? And what kind of mix do you usually have in your life? There's something deeply wrong with my brain, as, um, as has been pointed out to my attention in, a, in gentle and ungentle manners over these past 64 years. I, I live, some people are clearly at one extreme, you know, the the introverts uh, find it exhausting being in public and the, the extroverts find something lacking when they're alone. I can slide into either position. Um, I think it's because when I grew up, I grew up with a, a lot of people in a small house. Well, not tiny house, but relatively small. Uh, I, you know, I, I had five big sisters and, and there was a dog and there was a cat and there were lots of neighbors because my mother was a really friendly cook. And we were all crammed in. So on the one hand, I was just used to crowdedness. Uh, when we'd be in the car, I'd you know sit across my sisters on the back seat. This is before seatbelts. So I was used to just crowdedness. On the other hand, I, I loved curling up in a chair by the uh, window and just escaping, or just, I didn't feel it escape, enjoying the world of books. Uh, a portal, a door open, and there I would be, whether there were people around me or not. So I think I grew up with both sides and kind of enjoy that now. For me, an ideal day, is, um, say, three or four quiet hours, um, uh, uh, say, working in the afternoon, but just entering this other world. And then, whoop, quick, getting on the train to Shoreditch. There's a, a, a gym club I've been going to for many years, hanging out with my buddies, doing the stuff, um, maybe watching them drink a beer afterwards and then heading back. So it's a kind of, uh, a, a kind of uh, schizoid mix. Mm, mm. You had a book out, which I reviewed and loved, The Art of Fairness, uh, which in normal times would have warranted lots of book-related events, literary festivals, bookshop events, parties, etc. And of course, none of that was possible. What was it like promoting it online? It was kind of, the, the nice thing about promoting it online was that I felt there was a greater intimacy with the people I was uh, speaking with. Um, in, in the uh, past world, or I, I don't know what we call it, the pre-Boris world or whatever it was, you would... Eden, we called it Eden, Eden, I think, David, is correct. That's exactly right, my dear, we called it Eden. Um, And we didn't realize, which I suppose is, that ties in very well, doesn't it, with the Adam and Eve story. They were unaware at the beginning. That's that's what Eden, I suppose, really is. You you don't realize it is, as Joni Mitchell pointed out. Anyway, in the Edenic world uh, before the virus, um, you would interact with people, and sometimes at a at a literary festival, um, uh, Cheltenham or Hay or whatever, there could be more intimacy, especially if you were like I don't know, staying in the same hotel with people. Mm-hmm. But there was still a certain distance. There was nothing special about this. You hadn't taken a special journey, and neither of you were um, uh, had had been in peril or in danger along the way. And especially at the beginning of lockdown, 
I, I found that it could be a really nice connection. People would say, how are you? And they really mm. meant it. How are you? Mm. And now, of course, as the death rates have gone up and more and more of us, sadly, know people have been affected by it. There, there is that same thing. Look, are, are you really okay? You know, do you have older relatives uh, who are getting the vaccine in time? Things like that. Yes. So I found it um, a, a really nice sort of connection. And one of your job titles, the sort of job titles, is a futurist. So were you expecting us to have a pandemic at some point? It was pretty much inevitable. I, I always told people my greatest fear was uh, was biological warfare. Um, and, and this isn't anything special about me. Uh, everybody who looks ahead knows that you have, um, uh, and there have been many sort of pandemics before, which are sort of blocked, you know, SARS, et cetera, before they really, really took off. We have huge international air travel, so things uh, go very quickly. We have a certain number of international organizations, but even before the uh, uh, Trump administration, they didn't always get proper funding and didn't have uh, the ability to properly supervise. And these things can spread really fast. So uh, Laurie Garrett wrote the book, The Coming Plague. I think uh, in the Obama White House, they set up really good offices to take care of these things and supervise them. Um, so we, we knew that something was coming. This particular one, here I think we can only understand it in retrospect. Uh, we know that the Ebola virus and things like that really got going where humans were pushing against the frontiers of uh, of, uh, uh, of agriculture and wild nature. And with the growing population and the demand for more and more uh, expensive food, that happens. It happened, it looks like it happened in China. It could have happened any parts in, uh, in South America or in the US where people were living in areas where there were other species there. A Lyme tick disease in America gets a lot of people in wealthy suburbs, a sort of uh, uh, infection that's fine uh, with, with animals that are normally kept away from human beings. But when they overlap too much, there's a real problem. So we had a potential problem. The idea that it would be dealt with with such startling incompetency, that really did surprise me. I'd always thought that, oh, this was one of those, one of those things that's going to pull people together. It's kind of like a good versus a bad relationship or a good versus bad siblings. If you're on a long car journey and you get on well with your brothers and sisters, you're kind of happy and you tell stories and you elbow each other and you don't mind. Well, if it's a bad car journey... You say, you're touching me. You're breathing my air. You know, I don't want to talk to you. Things like that. So unfortunately, this was a bad car journey. Mm. And when, because for me, when it, I never, ever thought we would live through a pandemic, but when it was evident that it was going to happen and it was evident that we were going to go for so-called herd immunity and just let rip and let half a million people die, that was my point when I freaked out. I've been relatively calm since then because I just thought well this is going to be years and we just have to sit tight and try and stay alive but other people were walking mm -hmm. around as normal apparently believing our prime minister when he said it'd be over in a few weeks what what was your initial reaction the the um, uh, uh, the ability of uh, Boris Johnson and the Tory party to disappoint me has uh, has never been tested to its limits so um uh, so I, unfortunately I um or fortunately I I paid little attention to them this is going to sound kind of weird, but uh, I was delighted at how well the uh, um, society continued during the lockdown. I, I'm Jewish and spent a lot of time um, uh, reading about history. I have relatives who um, who uh, managed to get out of Europe or some distant relatives who didn't uh, in the mid 20th century. So I grew up with a high awareness of how society can fall apart. Uh, people can turn against each other. And I was delighted. I live up in the gentle streets of North London uh, near Hampstead Heath. What a stereotype for a writer. And um, uh, food was being delivered. There were no uh, manic gangs on the street. There were no attacks on houses. Uh, although Boris uh, wasn't, uh, uh, was far from perfect, I'll call him Mr. Johnson. I don't want to give him the respect of, of that uh, fake intimacy. So although Johnson was far from perfect, he didn't really rev up a, a real hatred against minorities in the country, which happens around the world in times of stress. Uh, food prices didn't shoot up. So I was, in that sense, I was really uh, pleased. I remember speaking to a friend from a similar background who was serving at a bakery and we looked at each other and said, this is great, isn't it? It really could be worse. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like if you've ever had a, a health problem, uh, which uh, many of us have at, at some point, afterwards, once you've recovered, the great thing is your expectations are so low. If I wake up and my heart is beating, I'm really happy because mm -hmm. there's been times when I've woken up and it was really in doubt whether it would be. Yes, yes, yes. Although... In terms of, for example, the food still turning up and supermarkets being open and the public transport going, 
I've been, as I'm sure we all have, intensely aware that those people have been risking their lives because they haven't, many of them haven't been adequately protected at work and quite a few of them have died. So this, on top of everything else, a huge feeling of guilt, really, that, you know, we can be stuck at home staring at our laptops, either working or not working or earning money or not earning money. But many, a huge chunk of the population can't pay any bills unless it goes out and risks its life every day. And I wonder what that does to us as a nation. Oh, you're entirely right. I, I think we had a brief moment, a sort of a, an NHS Clem Attlee 1945-1946 moment when there was a chance that the salaries, uh, sorry, what you're describing is what happens to some extent all the time, but it was super clear because of the health mm-hmm. risks. And it's really easy for people with a more comfortable life to take totally for granted that there's human beings doing things which we utterly depend on, which are often you know unpleasant, but weirdly they're underpaid. And so I thought there was going to be a brief moment in the spring and stuff when there would be a strong enough movement to really do a proper thing. Uh, taxes on uh, uh, on sudden uh, surplus gains in salaries, you know, the enormous bonuses that went to the top and um, and proper pay. I mean, if there had been a move to um, uh, raise uh, salaries in the NHS by a huge amount, uh, 30 percent or 50 percent, uh, starting at the bottom. So the, the lowest paid would get that and the highest paid would maybe stay the same. And spreading it across society, I, I thought that'd be great. There was some of the reason in America, uh, which uh, where, where there's been a, an understanding of a, of a raised minimum wage. More and more people are getting that gratefulness that you mentioned. Mm. And it, uh, luckily with Biden, it seems to be on the way to being institutionalized. Uh, with, uh, with Mr. Johnson's uh, magnificent party of uh, motto, if there's so- social justice, we're against exactly. it, um, at least in reality. A uh, little of that is happening. And as we know, enthusiasm tends to fade away, which is a real shame. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there that that I want to talk about, but I want to talk about your career first. I want to get back to the... Uh, this is so nice of you. Christina, this is so lovely. Normally, I, again, I, I sit at home. I, I have a little plastic uh, uh, Olaf from Frozen 2 on my desk. I'm holding him in my hand now. And he doesn't ask me my, about my career. <laughs> and like my kids are like, oh, God, they know this. So this is... This is just so sweet. <laughs> well, to go back to your career, you grew up in a, I presume, working class household in Chicago, went to university, read maths, physics and history, which is an unusual combination. Your parents didn't have the privilege of an education. Where did that intellectual curiosity come from? Oh, um, so uh, I, I suppose I want to play up. Sometimes I've made it un- unclear in some other interviews. So my, my grandparents were, were, were relatively poor. Uh, my parents um, uh, really were able to take part of some of the 20th century uh, increase and in stuff in America. Uh, so although my dad didn't go to university, my mother grew up in a really uh, dirt poor uh, farming family in the 1920s and 1930s. And it, it, they really had, uh, had real problems. Before the Great Depression mm. of the 30s, there was a a terrible agricultural depression of the 1920s. Mm. Uh, she had a brother they couldn't get medical care for who who died of a, of a bleeding ulcer, which mm. with a, a minimum of, of money probably could have been taken care of. But she managed to, the family managed, they couldn't put most of the kids through university. But in the 1930s, with terrific savings, they managed to get my mom through oh, university. Right. So she became a school teacher. Right. That was a very positive thing. It made her, um, even when we didn't have that much money, my dad uh, passed away when I was uh, 10, mm. which was a... Uh, a bummer, as they say. Mm. And so my mom was left widowed in, you know, in America with a very poor social security uh, uh, payout for people like that and, and with six kids you know, and with no help and stuff. Uh, but even then, even in circumstances like that, when the income was really tight, um, as she was just a, a supply teacher uh, in the Chicago school system, uh, she would always give money to the United Negro College Fund and for American Indians. At that time, they called American Indians, Native Americans for their uh, education things because she saw the crucial role, the crucial role that had played. Uh, I don't always, uh, I'm not always able to continue that virtue and I feel guilty when I'm not, but I do try to at least remember uh, some of those ideals. Mm. So I'm really, really thankful for that. Mm. So you did get, presumably got a lot of intellectual curiosity from your extraordinary mum. You mentioned also the fact that your father died when you were 10. Many, as I'm sure you're aware, Many, many high achievers, entrepreneurs, etc., lost their fathers when they were that sort of age. Do you totally. think that that had is part of your drive? I mean, what effect do you think it had on you? 
Oh, totally. Uh, you know, you, you want to uh, fulfill the, as Jung said, you want to fulfill the unfulfilled dreams of your parents. Mm. You know, the things that you are aware of that they may have wanted to do. So some of it, I remember when I was 21, I was uh, hitching. Um, I'd been in uh, London and a pretty girl asked, uh, mentioned she was going to Paris. And, and I said, oh, I'm going to Paris, but a guy by himself would never be picked up hitching. I just made it up at the time. <laughs> she gave me a look like, yeah, yeah, you're right, big boy. So we ended up hitching to Paris together. Um, and she would stand in front. She was significantly prettier than I was, and indeed than I am. And, and, and so we hitched to Paris and stuff. And after a while, we went our separate ways. And I remember I got a job at a newspaper there. It was my one uh, uh, full-time job. I, I, was, I was sort of employed for one year. In fact, actually, I was paid illegally in cash under the table as an illegal immigrant. So I've actually never had a job. Wow. It's, I, I think that's really impressive. The great thing about that is when a lot of my uh, friends uh, who have kids as they get older, they say they used to argue with the kids and have problems about the kids' careers. I told my kids, I have two grown-ups and now a little stepson. I told the ones who are now grown up when they were teenagers, look, you want advice, it's not going to come from me. How do I know? You'll work it out. Uh, you'll do it fine. I think one thing that also helped with education uh, so again, as I mentioned, I'm uh, from a Jewish family, and traditionally Jewish people were really poor for well thousands of years, but but also educated. Mm. So the uh, uh, synagogues don't have to be run. People sometimes think that a rabbi is kind of like a priest, a person with a special religious access or a funnel to divine authority. And uh, a rabbi just means a teacher. And you can have a synagogue without a rabbi, just people getting together to do it. Mm. And um, uh, again, I'm old enough to still remember when a real lot of the Jewish people in America were just had solid work, blue collar jobs, working class jobs as um, uh, uh, carpenters or uh, butchers or, or things like that. Uh, it, it's on my family uh, working on, um, well, farms and assembly lines and stuff. It's changed, luckily, in, in recent times uh, to, to get easier jobs. But in that generation where people didn't have um, uh, good incomes, and certainly before in Europe, when people were dirt poor, working as, as really uh, struggling farmers and stuff, Everybody would be educated. Uh, women were, were literate at a time when most people weren't. And the men would often, again, you can idealize it, but within reason, they, they would all be taught uh, to read. And also, as you've perhaps experienced, also be taught to argue. So you would you know, read the holy texts and discuss them. Maybe not a lot, but there was always the ideal. So some people, they might not have enough much time for reading, but they really admire it. Anyway, so back to Paris. I was in Paris. I was 21. And I remember thinking I managed to get a job at a newspaper. And many of the other uh, kids who had joined were children of editors of like the Washington Post or New York Times. They were perfectly nice kids, but they were sort of college kids having some time abroad. A few of them were keen on, on moving ahead. Many were passing time. And I realized I had this one-off opportunity. Uh, this door was open. I did not get it through family connections. The door was not going to be open anywhere else. So I remember thinking, gosh, you know, my, my dad and uh, his brother, who, who was still alive at that time, they would have loved this sort of opportunity. And in a sense, for their sake, I wasn't going to let it uh, disappear. Mm. And yet you also mention in your, I think somewhere on your website, that you, it was quite a, a, a menial job. You were uh, working in the telex room or something. And then uh, one of your yes. colleagues uh, was, you managed to kind of get his job on the main floor of the newsroom doing something slightly less menial and then he came back and then you pretended that you didn't know that you had had this deal uh, which was a kind of ethical murkiness that I think has slightly haunted you since and which may have played a part in fueling um, the art of fairness which I know has been brewing for many years can you say a bit about that and the effect it had on you that oh, feeling of compromising yourself oh, sure yeah you're entirely right and also thank you for poking around on the website uh, I spent ages this summer putting in all sorts of little goodies but I, I don't know how I organized it because some of them you have to like track through click on this and then click on that and then you come to a nice story about fascinating something yeah, I really so, enjoyed it it's fascinating oh good yeah so, so I, I mean there's a lot of little byways to uh, to discover um, uh, and, uh, and as you know, as, as a writer, you never know which byway is going to burgeon and become an entire book. So, but as to that particular story, yeah. So, uh, at, at the newspaper, there were, I don't know, seven or eight levels. There were, you know, the publisher on top and the editors and then the cool reporters who just seemed unbelievably neat and stuff. I remember when I was hired as a copy boy, I asked a, a woman who was a secretary there, a, a young woman, American, uh, but multilingual what copy boys did. And she said, you know, there's some things that are just too demeaning and, and just not appropriate for a proud woman these days. That's what you'll do. You'll do everything else. So, but below copy boy was telex operator. 
copy boys at least could go out and, and like literally carry copy pieces of paper to the editors and you can give like a smart little comment and you know let them know you exist so 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 at the herald tribune newspaper there were many levels and the lowest of the lowest jobs was telex operator you were stuck in a back room um away from all the editors uh, if you've ever seen like those old uh, newspaper movies from the mm-hmm. 1950s or so there were these machines that would clack 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 and a type would come out and they were connected literally by by cables to news services around the world it was very exciting i had seven or eight machines like that and the papers would come out i would tear off the pieces of paper and fold them into piles and then put them by the door and somebody else would take them neatly folded and put them on the desk where the news editors were that person could speak to the news editors drop in a casual comment be friendly avuncular and stuff not me i was back in the telex room and i remember when i'd gotten the job i thought ooh copy boy, that sounds great because weren't all editors once copy boys. And it took me a while to realize, yeah, but it doesn't mean all copy boys become editors. <laughs> so I thought I was stuck. And then a friend of mine who was a, a fellow uh, um, a telex operator, he got a job higher up uh, trying out to be one of the uh, sub-editors, uh, copy editors, sub-editors on the, main, on the main desk, what they called the rim. While he did that, I got the incredible promotion I could walk from the telex room carrying these pieces of paper to the main desk where the editors were. I could sort them into little piles and casually bring in my knowledge and get to know these human beings before I'd go back and uh, tear off the telex papers again. Um, This was great. I thought, here I have a chance of moving up from the telex room. I have zero chance. And then my friend, um, uh, he he didn't get that that job, and he was back in the telex room. And this is where I fudged. We had basically, it was, we had never said that I would continue uh, uh, taking the papers out where I could meet the editors. Um, but I kind of pretended that I would do that half time. And so I feel a little bit guilty. Now, I defended it to myself. That fellow was actually very well connected. He was from a, a, prosper, a wealthy family and he was uh, bilingual already in French. I was only learning French at the time. And he had lots of connections in the French establishment and, and to some extent, the American establishment. Um, but you know what it is? That's a, a post hoc rationalization. What I did was sort of unjust. I put myself first. Um, and it turned out eventually he left the paper. And I, I did move up. I managed to carry the pieces of paper out to the editors. I got to speak to them. I got to know them. I started writing articles and I wrote more and more articles. I suppose I go back to that because it's it's really easy to sit at a desk in a quiet room looking out on trees and set, tell people how virtuous they should be. The moment you're tested, it's instantly harder. And this was a trivial test among young people, none of whom were starving, in a you know perfectly pleasant uh, uh, organization in Paris. And I wasn't awful, but I just pushed a little bit, which I suppose makes me uh, think in the back of my head how important uh, laws are and also how important the ethos is of the people and the organizations around you. So it's very interesting. I have also thought hugely about this issue. In fact, I did a lot of work on the NHS some years ago as a, as a journalist and uh, wanted to do a research project, which for various reasons didn't happen in the end, about empathy and compassion. But I do think There is quite a gulf when you are sitting at, as you said, when you're sitting at home in front of your computer, not really answerable to anybody except whoever has um, is paying you for your latest piece or whatever work you're currently doing. I think that's quite different to being in an organisation where the your boss, for example, is a shit, and you can't Mm -hmm. progress anywhere because your boss is blocking that. Did you feel when you when you started approaching because I know the book's been brewing for years and years but are you you I think there's a big difference between those of us who are not answerable to anybody and people who are Can you say a bit about uh, how uh, that informed your thinking and writing uh, 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 Absolutely I I think that was one of the key questions Sorry it's too easy for an academic or a writer to to just say these lovely things and avoid uh, an academic will have a guaranteed salary and a guaranteed pension, and they're unlikely to be fired. So you can talk about all sorts of things which, um, which aren't really true. Uh, one of the stories that I always thought is, is relevant there is Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer and nonfiction writer also. Uh, he, he, uh, he originally trained in biochemistry, and he got a position teaching, I think, at a Boston University Medical School. Then later he, uh, he moved away, became a prosperous writer, but he kept his position, and he'd sometimes go back for administrative meetings. And there was one meeting he went back to where the uh, faculty, uh, the organizers, the administrators were treating the faculty really poorly. I think they were going to be cutting salary or uh, uh, changing their conditions in an unjust way. And Asimov stood up for the faculty. 
And as he was leaving the meeting, one of the junior faculty members said, Dr. Asimov, how did you have the guts to do that? And Asimov said, easy, two words, outside income, yeah. which meant he was independent. Yeah. He had an outside income and he could do that. Yeah. So it's, it's easy for that to happen. So to get around that problem, what I did for this book, to make it practical, I tried to put myself uh, to the side as much as possible. And I ventured out into the real world, um, changing out of my pajamas, leaving my trustworthy cup of tea behind. And I spent time in uh, law firms and banks and high tech firms and um, I chatted uh, at length with people in the armed forces and uh, with people who had been involved in, in hospitals, actual surgeons and anesthetists and stuff, and really tried to be inside the organizations and feel for what they were doing. Mm. And that, uh, I, I don't know if that, it was perfect, but it allowed me to write it from their perspective. Mm. And how long, I, I want to get back to your other books in a moment, but how long has this particular book been brewing for? Because I have the impression it's been decades yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, when it comes to procrastination, my, my abilities are are, are magnificent. Um, so I, I actually, I it's hard to tell when I you first got the idea. I, I think it had always been running through my head. I remember um, uh, decades ago, a, a friend had quote unquote made it in writing, and and I realized the friend didn't care uh, who she would write for. Uh, it could be a cigarette company or whatever it was, and I realized, ooh, uh, you know, some of us have certain constraints. Um, and I thought, is it a constraint or is it an advantage? It just floated around. And then about 20 years ago, I was at a conference where there was this really horrible human being speaking, one of the uh, Wall Street titans. And he was he was a real thug. Uh, he gave a, 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 a good talk. He'd been coached by an expensive PR company. I remember at the end, it was, there was one point of him pushing a, a, a handicapped child in a wheelchair across, like, I think, a sunny meadow with the wind blowing. I thought, this is beyond corny. Uh, and so he gave a decent talk, but the moment I, I was speaking also, so we, we met in the green room, the moment he was off stage, the snarl came back. I remember there was a, a, a youngish uh, female graduate student who had been really interested in some aspects of his work and started asking him a really friendly question. And he swore at her. He used these horrible words that you can't use uh, these days and get away with it. And he just looked at her with scorn. You know, why was she deign, why would he deign to pay attention to somebody inferior to him? And he was like that the whole way through the conference except when there was somebody, a very few people, like if Bill Gates was there or someone who might have power that he could suck up to. I thought, what a horrible, uh, unpleasant man. Anyways, at the exact same conference, there was John Warnock, the guy uh, head of Adobe Photo Systems. If you've ever used a PDF that came from his, um, uh, from his company, a portable data file, and he was a billionaire. He was the nicest guy. Mm. Didn't mean he was a wuss. Uh, I'm sure in his company, he fired people when he had to. But he was pleasant when he sat there. If he had security, he wasn't surrounded by thugs. They'd be like, you know, just quietly elsewhere and stuff. He was chatting with his wife. He was really pleasant. You could see if uh, some of his uh, colleagues came up, you know, he'd lean forward. He'd listen to them. He wouldn't bark out answers. And I thought, wow, this guy is uh, more pleasant than the uh, Wall Street Titan. And he's richer. Now, I know riches aren't the only uh, measure of success. But I thought even by that very simple measure, you can do it. You can do it this way. So I thought this is a great idea for a book. Interesting. You see, you, you talk about essentially giving ideas a storytelling scaffolding, which, which you are incredibly good at. But you also talked about what if this book doesn't sell. And you, I think, were in your mid-30s when your first book became a bestseller. That was before E equals MC squared. Um, trying to remember what it was called now. The house, what was it called? The um, the one about... Oh, it turns out I, I was lucky. I think I think I was only 30 years old or something. It was a book called The Secret House. Yeah. yeah. And it was a, just imagined a one meter bubble around yourself in the course of 24 hours. And what takes place in that one meter bubble? Mm. And it was a delightful, charming book once I got the hang of it. Mm. And, uh, and I was very lucky that, uh, that took off very well. And what effect? Because essentially you've been writing best-selling books since you were, did you say you were 30 when The Secret House came out? I think so, yeah. That was my second book. My first book in my mid-20s was catastrophically bad. It was so bad, it wasn't even bad. Um, it, it, it isn't like, oh, you read it and it's embarrassing. It was like, oh, this is really bland. Oh, really? Who wrote this? It was sort of like a mixture of tapioca pudding with extra mayonnaise on white bread. You know, why did he bother to do this? I didn't have any honest tone. I wasn't even faking effect of something else. It was just sort of bland. The mistake in that first book is I was too determined. I made a rule whatever happens, I'm going to pour out 600 words per day. And the problem is, yes, it's good to have a discipline, 
but what works much better, I, at least for me, I'm guessing for you and many others, is to think of chapters per week or per month. So there's some days when it's super clear in your head, you just fire it out. There's other days when you're the sponge is sort of empty. You want to step back, think about it a bit, drive your friend nuts to, or your friend's nuts talking about it, maybe do some background reading, then maybe sit down and make some outlines or whatever. So it's a, it's a sort of an uneven process. So with this one, I just poured it out steady, steady, steady. And there was there was no tone or organization. It, it was really good for my humility. If everybody, if, if anybody compliments me on my books, I just quietly think inside, yeah, yeah, but I wrote that one. But yeah, but the second one was, was really good. I was very happy with it. There was a story about the second one. On my website, did I tell you about the people who stole a book from me? Is that on the um, website? I don't. I can't remember that one, actually. I didn't think I'd read that. No. Ooh, oh, can, can I tell you? I think maybe I didn't write. Everybody involved is dead now, so, so it's actually okay to say. So that first book was, eh, nothing to it. I was living in the south of France with a, with a lovely lady, um, the, the lady who I dedicate the, uh, the current book to. I got an idea for a terrific uh, book. Um, and I, uh, I, I wrote it up. It was a short book, but it was, it was a really, really nice idea. And I shared it with an editor in London who, uh, um, who really liked it and ended up publishing it under somebody else's name. No. Uh, it's sold for like 100,000 copies in hardcover, oh. which is a lot of copies, as you know. Anyway, so I went to uh, a Michael, um, uh, what was his name? Rubenstein, the, the leading uh, intellectual property solicitor at the time, a brother of Hillary Rubenstein, uh, uh, the great agent. And I described what happened. He said, David... When you had the meetings, were there always two people in the room with you? And I said, yeah. I said, oh, well, you know, they'll always be able to have testimony of two against one. And he also said, uh, here's what I recommend. If you sue them, you'll wake up thinking about it and you'll fall asleep thinking about it. And also you will only be able to get, curiously, the law was such, you wouldn't be able to get your uh, the royalties from that. You'd only get your lost income. And I was a freelance journalist, which was an okay income, but not incredible. Oh. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write him a letter. They're going to send you a tiny check, just a few hundred pounds, admitting nothing. And what I recommend very strongly from 30, 40 years in the business, go to the south of France and write a bestseller. I took his advice. The next day, I think I did a check for 100 pounds. I went to the south of France and I wrote a bestseller. And I thought, what a good man. And how did you know that it was, uh, I mean, you've written all these bestsellers, which, you know, obviously everybody write, every writer wants to write a bestseller. Did you know, did you actually know they were going to be bestsellers? Hundred percent. The the trick is um uh, is if you're honest to yourself, uh, it, it it works. All I can compare it to is is a good date. Or you must have this a million times with the uh, with the podcast, um, uh, you know, with a good conversation. I, I, on a, not, I don't want to say a bad date. A bad date is catastrophic. You say, oh my god, my my lettuce is burning. I got to leave. You know, but on a let's say a mediocre date. On a mediocre date, you tell your cute stories. Uh, they tell their cute stories. You're not really interacting. Uh, but then on a good date, something happens. You break through that barrier and suddenly you're not aware. Time and space almost disappear. You're just connecting. You're connecting and sharing with the person. And this is one reason that people love, I, I don't know, the standard thing, somebody lying on another person's chest at three in the morning. Uh, what's beautiful there is there's no side to use that word, S-I-D-E. You're just connected. You can share anything. You're just at ease and at one with each other. Anyway, so I've written some books that didn't sell that much. Um, either they, they were sequels, I was trying to keep them in mind, or the I was trying to work for a fact. I thought, oh, the audience might like this. And that's wrong. If you let that all disappear uh, and become just honestly uh, connected to what's there, people can tell. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I've, I've been a critic for more than 30 years, and I've reviewed some absolutely wonderful books that have not been bestsellers and some not very good books that have been bestsellers. So I'm not sure. It sounds to me as though the magic has worked for you, but I'm not sure that it works for everyone. Actually, there, uh, allow me now to backtrack. Um, <laughs> you know, some people say, uh, my efficient, my, uh, I think AJP Taylor said, I have uh, deep opinions superficially held. Um, so I, I'll backtrack in, in, two, in two realms. One is there's no question that terrible books can become bestsellers, um, uh, either by chance or, um, or if there's a famous person involved. So there, there's absolute uh, issues of that. Uh, one reason, but what gives me a pleasure is when I look on the, I don't know, the top 10 or the top 20 uh, books, there's usually at least one or two real books in there. And, 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 and that's a real pleasure. And I also agree with you without question, there's been beautiful books. This must really hurt you when you, you know, as a critic, a book that you know is, is a great book and it's just not getting the audience. It's like sometimes one of the great things about our streaming platforms, you can see a relatively small film. It's like, that was great. I mean, that was really good. How come I didn't hear of that? And the thing is, 
you know, not everything can get distribution in thousands of cinemas. An advantage of streaming, although things can get lost, they can't get out there. So I'm totally with you. Um, th- there was one book I really liked. Um, oh, the book about Emily du Chatelet. Th- that was a beautiful yeah, book. And it's sold, yeah. it sold a, yeah, a Passion of Minds. Mm-hmm. And it sold okay. Um, but it, uh, it, it um, I, I think if, I don't know, if circumstances had been different, it could have taken off more. It was Book of the Week on Radio 4. So it, it got a positive pickup. Um, and, and, and the sales were fine. I, my, I, maybe my standards are high. Maybe I'm just lucky. But you see, you've had this uh, really, from the outside, enviable career where you've been able to pursue your intellectual curiosity in ways that have been well remunerated. You've had best-selling books. Uh, e equals MC squared, I think, was published in 24 languages, won a prize, was made into a TV drama documentary, was made into a ballet, amazingly. But most writers, the, the the literary and cultural ecosystem has changed. I mean, I remember in the, in the 80s and 90s, friends of mine who were writers were getting very big advances, and that has mostly changed. Of course, some writers still do, and some writers still make a very good living, but the vast majority of writers now can't, and journalists for that matter, um, can't make a good living out of writing books or being a freelance journalist. And yet the kind of books that you've written, like um, Passionate Minds, which is um, about the relationship between uh, Marie du, uh, is it Chatelet and uh, Voltaire? And Voltaire, yes. And about, you know, she was a kind of precursor of Einstein in some ways, a a sort of, you know, keen to um, promote Newton's ideas, you know, real scientific thinking. This is absolutely about the Enlightenment, Enlightenment thinking, which, you know, again, I want to get into in a moment. But this is a kind of about as broad intellectually as you get. Books like that involve a great deal of research. But who's got the time now? Because if you have to earn a living, if you have to work full time to pay your bills, who's got the time, unless you are an academic and get sabbaticals, to do the kind of research involved to produce books like that? How are they going to happen now, basically? Yes. So, so there, there's a, there, there's a solution. Um, uh, the, uh, I, I don't want to disparage academics, uh, not just because many of them are the, my future reviewers, uh, and some do really, really good works. Uh, the problem is that uh, many academics live in an environment where even though themselves individually uh, can be really generous people, and I speak as somebody who is an academic myself for a little while, uh, and, I, and I love my colleagues, there's a, a handful of bitchy people who often have a loud voice. And they can really crush uh, somebody's uh, confidence. They, you know, if you know that there's going to be somebody at a dinner you're going to have to eat with on Tuesday and Thursday night, and they're just going to be snide about what you're trying to do, that really hurts. It also hurts often if you're if you're re- really well read, and you realize your first page is not going to be as good as I don't know Tolstoy or Jane Austen or whatever. Um, so you can become overcritical. So it, it, I agree with you. Academics have a lot of uh, have they have the guaranteed salary that we freelancers lust for. Um, but they also, you know, they have a certain number of obligations with teaching and administration these days very much, but also that negativity from a certain number of colleagues that gets in the way. Uh, there's some departments that fight that. And there's some uh, uh, some colleges and some, uh, some departments which are known for a range of good writers. I don't think because the people there were inherently more talented, but because they didn't have that reflexive bitchiness from their colleagues. Yeah, Anyways, but, to get back to but, the, sorry, yeah. just to interject, David. I mean, a lot of my, quite a few of my friends are academics, and it's really, really tough now. I mean, they're working kind of every minute God sends and have absolutely no time to do any writing of their own. But so, and and it's also actually quite hard to get into academia now. And after the pandemic, knows what's going to happen? Oh. But for, I'm talking about for yeah. people who who unless you are, who don't have, you know, how are the economics going to work for people now in terms of writing the kinds of books you've written? Obviously, if they're bestsellers, great, but most books are not bestsellers. And so how, what advice would you give to a young person who says, oh, I really like the look of the career you've had, David, how can I have a career like that? Oh, sure. So there I would do, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the advice I would give is the following, and it comes from a friend I knew at university, who um, uh, was really into dancing. And there was, this is a long time ago. Uh, the advantage of being old is you have, you have a real stretch of time to talk about. This was a long time ago. And she knew even then there wasn't that much uh, money in it. Um, so she tried to work out, how could I earn money efficiently? So if I have a job at, I don't know, a, a dollar an hour, I have to work these many hours for what I need. If I can do something else that could pay more, that's even better. So she, uh, she had no particular interest in, in accounting or mathematics, but she had a minor flair in there. So she made herself study accounting. 
um, which some people love. For her, it was totally neutral, but it paid significantly more than working in a shop. Yeah. Significantly more. So uh, through her career, for decades and decades, she did a lot of uh, yoga and flexibility. So she was dancing, I think, into her 50s. She could do things like accounting or things related to that. And if you really hustle for two or three days a week, you can earn an okay income from it. Mm. The sort of thing which is a waitress, you would have to do six days yes. a week. And what you said about the academics these days, you're entirely right. Um, the, the job looks great and the titles look great. But with the admin and stuff, maybe there's five weeks in the summer. And it's really hard to, or 10 weeks, and it's really hard to rev up and rev down a whole project in that time. Mm. Anyway, so going back to my friend, the dancer. So I've done that. So my books, I, I've been very lucky. They've sold well, but there were definitely um, uh, down patches. So I would try to do things that were, uh, I don't know, uh, I, I was lucky enough, they would often be interesting, but I would try to do things that had a decent density of pay. Mm. So uh, I suppose the advice would be, if you could do something that uh, ideally uses a slightly different part of your brain, but it also has a chance of being paid uh, higher than, than 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 standard, so so that's one yeah. sort of thing. So accounting is an excellent thing, yeah. totally worthy, useful thing. Does more. The other thing which I did in my early twenties before my books were selling, because it took a long time to get going. Um, uh, I, like you said, it's, I, I was almost I, I was thirty before the first book really hit the jackpot. I went to a place where my expenditures were really really light. That lovely uh, French lady and I moved to a little village. I think it turns out if you're an American from the Midwest, as I am, and uh, you want to be a writer, it's got to stay in your passport. You have to pretentiously go up to the south of France at some point. Uh, in my self-defense, I say I wasn't pretentious. I didn't know the writing crowd. And this, this, this lady had some family and friends there. So it was just a place we went to. And what was great, you do, if you live in London or Manchester or whatever, and you're really on a very, very low income, you tend to live in a sort of crummy way. But if you're in a tiny, tiny village, um, if you're on a low income, it, it doesn't hurt as much. I mean, mm. clearly below a certain level it does, but you can get by with much less. So you get away from that exhausting obsession with uh, with doing this extra stuff. Mm. So that makes a world of difference. Now, if it's too isolated, if you're away too far for too long, you kind of go nuts. And you end up as the sort of person who who writes letters to to Miss Patterson with you know with green crayon at a funny angle and stuff. So so so, so you got to watch out for that. Mm. But a certain amount of time away is beautiful. Mm. And in the book, I was particularly taken by the stories of Goebbels and FDR. About half the book you focus on on them, and um, I didn't know that Goebbels had all these literary aspirations as a to be a poet and novelist and so on, and was horrified by the way that he turned his literary gifts into one of the greatest propaganda machines in history and I was even more horrified to realize how very similar they were to that Steve Bannon repeat a lie until uh until people believe it or shall we say the Goebbels repeat a lie <laughs> until people believe it which is exactly yeah. what we've seen both in the U.S. and here in the last um Totally, 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 totally. Um, and I wondered, and I know in 2013 you wrote um, an essay about machine-generated fascism. And and again, I mean, I, it was obvious from the beginning that Trump was a fascist. It was absolutely obvious when Charlottesville happened. And of course, um, three weeks ago, or whatever it is now, when he uh, launched his coup, uh, there was nobody apart from Republicans and 70 million Americans could deny he was a fascist. And I just wondered, for you, with your enlightenment focus really in terms of your intellectual education and your um your books what it has been to watch this car crash of kind of fascism and lies and propaganda unfolding and what those of us who find it very painful and feel we can't do anything about it what can we do about it what do you feel you do about it what can we do about it because it does feel it feels to me like a source of psychic grief that you just have to live with and it's very very unpleasant I, you, you've nailed it really really well i mean i try to be jokey about it and you know all that sort of stuff but it's uh, it's horrible uh who would have believed this was would be coming back uh the notion that um uh, in uh, that there's a prime minister who insists on press conferences with the uh, Union Jack behind him, but from number 10 rather than in the uh, rather than in Parliament. Uh, Churchill occasionally gave speeches uh, from the radio elsewhere, but the most important things would obviously be in Parliament, where Nye Bevan would lay into him and he would go back and forth, and uh, things were things were discussed. 
there the idea of uh, some of the stuff that's recently happened, especially with Boris Johnson's friendly face, that that makes it worse, mm. is really uh, distressing. Um, when, when I was uh, young, uh, you know, I, I was born 11 years after World War II. The uh, the barber who um, uh, who cut my hair, he had uh, uh, tattoos on his forearm from the uh, concentration camp that he had been uh, rescued from by uh, by British troops, actually. Um, he was actually really nice to me. My dad gave him the uh, the barber chairs. My my dad pretended that he had, oh, look, you've, you've just arrived in the country. I have some barber chairs in my basement. Wow. In fact, my dad bought them or maybe borrowed them secondhand from a, the back of a lorry or whatever. So the guy was really, anyways, I grew up with, with, with that. So it was really real. And I knew that luckily in Britain and America, decent places, especially Britain, the bastion of liberalism, of the decency, this was far, far away. Uh, I think the most practical thing uh, now is uh, make sure that Britain avoids the uh, the media that uh, uh, is distorting things in America. There's a, a certain number of Trump supporters are, are horrible human beings. Uh, quite a number are not horrible human beings, but they're extremely deluded. If you ask them uh, questions, uh, they'll say things that they think are true, which are not the case. Mm. Uh, Nick Kristof, the New York Times uh, uh, columnist, who grew up in a rural part of uh, Oregon, just ordinary working class sort of thing. And he's a nice guy and he goes back and hangs out there. And on his latest visit, a number of the people said, well, Nick, will, he wrote about it in the New York Times recently, Nick, you'll protect us from the uh, uh, detention camps, the detention camps that the Democrats are setting up to round us oh. up. And he said, what? Oh. And that's what they believe. So if you believe that, that's, um, uh, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the greatest danger, I, I've recently started reading the Times, a newspaper, and um, if there is a chance to lay it into the BBC, they oh. will. And if there is a chance to promote this totally independent uh, radio and, God forbid, future TV station, which Murdoch is uh, supporting, they will. And uh, the problem with uh, the, these new systems is that there is no um, inherent belief uh, in, in balance. Uh, and as we know, in the short term, things that, are, uh, that rev you up, that get you angry, work really, really well. Uh, so I think the, uh, uh, the, greatest, uh, uh, the greatest thing we could do is uh, stop this. When this happens, I don't know. Tony Blair was incapable of doing that because the fear of being on the receiving end of the Murdoch press and the people who will uh, 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 gleefully or, or just passively go along or do his bidding, it's, it's too much. All those lovely, favorable articles uh, uh, to Boris Johnson in the, in the Times showing him with a hard hat smiling and doing this and that, they could be reversed just with one elderly man tilting his finger around and hundreds of people will do his bidding. And, uh, and sadly, millions will read it and just kind of get a different sort of consensus. So if we were to have a key point to intervene in the system, that would be it. Uh, the BBC is not perfect, but the ideal of uh, balance is magnificent. And uh, in human history, it's not natural. You know how it's really easy to sing. Many people have a good voice. It's really hard to compose. There aren't that many really good composers. So uh, to get angry is really easy. You don't have to have a commandment saying, uh, thou must get angry. It's really easy to get angry, to be calm and reduce false witness uh, and, uh, and uh, stuff like that. That's what's hard. Yeah, it is hard. I, I, I can't see that any of that is going to happen. The, the press is dominated by right wing billionaires and uh, we are going to get GB News, which is going to be a kind of British Fox News. So I can't personally see that the polarisation isn't going to increase and it doesn't look as though we're going to be regulating Facebook uh, anytime soon either. But um, anyway, to be a little bit more hopeful, what practical advice can you offer to people who are feeling, look, look, here are our political leaders. Okay, we've got the fantastic news that Biden has for the moment, um, is for the moment president of the US and has possibly swung a pendulum towards niceness uh, in a way that doesn't seem to be the case in this country or in many Western democracies at the moment. And in many workplaces, the nice guys are not at the top and nor are the nice girls. If you are feeling discouraged about this and you are a nice guy or girl and you also would quite like to progress in your career because guess what, you're not a doormat, what is the key advice that you would offer? I suppose there, there, there's, there's an assessment and then the advice. The assessment is the following. If you're in an utterly poisonous organization where there's no chance whatsoever that any decency can survive, if you can at all afford it, leave that organization. It's really, really hard to change organizations. Um, so if it's, but if it's utterly poisonous, if there's any chance of leaving, and if you're not quite sure, leave. Uh, you won't be able to change it. Yeah. If the organization is mildly bad to neutral, 
And there's the sort of the scummy person who gets up and sucks up to the boss or a little bit of a bully and stuff. That's a kind of, that, that's the real world. I suppose the, uh, the, the lesson that I, I hope people can draw from the book is that you can change the behavior of yourself and the, perhaps the team around you or a few colleagues, and it will be not just an abstract virtue that will be rewarded in heaven, but a concrete thing that'll work. If you yourself and your colleagues uh, share information uh, with each other, not bitchy uh, gossip behind people's back, but are kind of open and like put your ego a little bit to the side, you'll kind of know what's going on. If you bend over a little bit backwards to be helpful to, to the trustworthy people, so remember, you can't do that to everybody, uh, anybody, especially women, but to be honest, men these days also. If you're merely nice to everybody, you'll, you will be taken advantage of. But if you're cautiously uh, considerate, then instead of getting resentment coming back, you get gratitude. Mm. So that's really good. Mm. So you can make a little subset where these people like, yeah, come on, we trust each other. Yeah, we'll put our ego to the side. Kind of understand clearly what's going on. We don't terrify each other. So we have good information flow. We try, we're, we're humans, we're not saints, we won't always do it. But within reason and taking into account auditing, we'll, we'll try to be a little bit generous to each other. And the result is we'll go the extra mile to help each other. That's really good. And the same thing with boundaries. You know, there's some people you can't trust. You got to look outside. You can't trust them. That's true. But there's quite a few who, if you treat them decently, maybe with a bit of precautions, you really can. And then you can build uh, uh, alliances and you can find that other teams or other organizations will say, oh, that's fair. You can work together. So the strengths in the book, the uh, it's to say listening without ego, it isn't just something you should do for God in heaven. It's like, ooh, you'll actually get more information. People will come to you with, uh, be willing to share knowledge. If you're a little bit generous towards others, not naively, you know, watch out for the people who are going to rip you off. You can get gratitude coming back and you can get cohesive, stronger teams. And if you, um, if we, if you don't over-defend when you have to defend yourself, and of course you do have to defend yourself, if you don't overdo it, then you have a chance of setting up alliances and groups working together. Um, so all that can be good. This isn't the only way up. And again, in a poisonous organization, sadly, it'll have no effect. But in many, it kind of will. You know, this reminds me of, I remember um, uh, uh, when, my, when my older kids first started being old enough to, I don't know, go to restaurants or whatever with, with their friends, uh, early teenage, whenever you do that, they sometimes say, oh, or I noticed it myself, there's a long table and the people on the far side of the table, they're having a really good conversation. I'm on the boring side of the table. And the trick there is change it. Make your boring side of the table the really best side of the table. If you can genuinely connect, and again, there's some awful people like that Wall Street guy I mentioned, you just can't connect with, it's not gonna happen. But there's quite a few you can break through and you can make your boring side of the table, you can make it really interesting. <laughs> Very good point. Well, that's a, an excellent point to end on. Thank you so much, David Badanis. It's been really fascinating talking to you. Thank you. This has been uh, the greatest pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Queen Christina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.